Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Robbie Whelan uh, of The Wall Street Journal. Now, Robbie uh, is on the show because he uh, has been writing about the the big the big change at Disney. We've got Bob Iger back, Bob Chapek out, lots of stuff going on. But the reason specifically I reached out to Robbie was because he uh, he wrote a piece about the Disney parks. And the Disney parks are an enormous piece of the... Uh, the the Disney infrastructure, the Disney business world that I simply don't have a good grasp on because I'm a movie guy. I'm a movie and a TV guy. I know that. I don't know the parks as well. Um, uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, discomfort amongst the faithful uh, about how the parks are working. And I want to have Robbie on to talk about it. So thank you for being on the show, Robbie. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. So what is going on uh, with the parks? Could you actually before we even talk about that, could you just kind of explain to folks how big the parks are as a percentage or in relation to the rest of the Disney empire and universe? Sure. Um, When we talk about um, operating income generated by by Disney, which is another word for profit um, in the last quarter. The, the DPEP, which is um, Disney's Parks and, and Experiences Division, was responsible for north of 90% of, of the company's profit for the quarter. Over the last year, they're responsible for about two-thirds of the company's profit. And um, the reason why that's important is that Disney is spending a ton of money right now on streaming um, because that's what Wall Street told them to do. Um, when, when when they launched Disney+, Plus, they got essentially a green light from investors some of whom were even kind of coming and talking to the board, talking to Bob Iger at the time, who was CEO back then in 2019, and, and saying, guys, go for it. Spend everything you, you, you've you got on, on streaming. Dan Loeb, one of the activist investors who um, has been in touch with Disney, you know, even wrote a letter to Disney saying, guys, suspend your dividend, plow all that cash into Disney Plus and really do a good job on, on building a, a streaming platform that will comp- compete with Netflix. And um, and that's what the company did. So uh, I mean, I've tallied it up many times. But as of last quarter, Disney's losses on, on streaming on the direct to consumer segment were north of eight billion dollars in just three years. And that's an enormous amount of money for this, even for a big company like Disney. So you need something to subsidize those losses. And that thing is is the parks division. Well, it's the parks division and it's linear TV because ESPN, much as people talk about the the secular decline of, of cable, you know, cord cutting and, and, and cable TV kind of being on the way, going the way of the Stone Age, you know, that, that business still does generate a lot of cash for Disney. So it's two things. Linear TV and parks that are that are providing this flow of cash that allows Disney to to lose a lot of money on streaming. Yeah, I, the way I heard somebody describe Disney once was it's essentially a uh, a park operator and a TV network operator and a cable network operator with a movie studio kind of attached on the side, <laughs> just just off to the the edges a bit. Right, and of course that's it's not always been that way. You know, I mean. You know, they acquired ABC and, and ESPN in the, in the mid '90s. Um, so for you know the first 75 years of Disney's existence, it really was a movie studio and not much else. And I guess a movie studio and a um, and a merchandise business. But but um, since the mid '90s, after the changes made by Michael Eisner. Um, the, the 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 parks and the linear TV business have really taken on much more strategic importance. And, uh, you know, th- another important point here is that during the pandemic, 
um, you know, during the worst days of the pandemic when everyone was kind of glued to their couch and there were lockdown orders in effect, Disney Plus was 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 the paramount idea on, on every executive's mind at the company. I mean, because you couldn't go to theaters, you couldn't go to the theme parks. I mean, Disneyland was closed for, for about a year. Walt Disney World was closed for only a few months. But this had a huge impact. I mean, they fired tens of thousands of people. Um, or laid them off rather, and 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 after that, it became very difficult to attract them back to go wear these big fuzzy vinyl costumes in in eighty five degree heat in in hundred percent humidity in, in Florida. I mean, these are not fun jobs. They're done for the love of it, and when you get laid off, it's not a simple thing to kind of bring back staffing. And so, so what I'm saying is that the pandemic catapulted Disney plus to the front and center in terms of relevance. But when the pandemic eased and the parks reopened, suddenly things flipped and it was the parks that um, were first of all producing record, record amounts of money, revenue and income both, but also became much, much more important and um, sort of the reemerged, so to speak, as the crown jewel of the company. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the parks and how things have uh, have have been going and how they changed a little bit, because I you know, one of the one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit. I took my folk, my my family to go uh, to Disney World earlier this year and it was great. We had a wonderful time. I, you know, uh, had had a lot of fun and I talked about this online. And every time I bring it up online, I will get messages from regulars who are like, man, it's too bad you couldn't have gone back in the good old days when it was, you know, before before all the new stuff. And like I have no frame of reference here. I have no frame of reference. <laughs> so what did what did what were some of the changes that uh, Bob Chapek uh, instituted that helped increase the profitability, but also turn some of the regulars against uh, what was going on? Yeah. So to answer that question. So you know, Sonny, you know what your credit card bill looks like after a uh, after a visit to Dis- yeah. Disney Disneyland or Disney World. I mean, I, I do too. I have I have little kids, and when I go, they 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 have an absolute blast, and they you know it's like whatever it's you know Super Eight Cam family heart melting moments left and right. But when you get home is when the real reckoning happens because you've you spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars even on a day trip there. Um, I think that the the simple answer is that things have just gotten a lot more expensive at, at Disney's theme parks. And what was once a kind of like quintessential, you know, vacation for for middle class Americans, um, you know, a few days at Disney World on spring break or whatever it is, it, you know, is really much more out of reach to those same Americans. And it's become like many things in this world, an exclusive club. You know, you got to have, you got to know somebody, you got to be a member of some benefits program, or you got to have the right credit card to get the right discount. And, and um, it's very frustrating. I mean, it's like, it's the same thing with concert tickets that we see today. You know, I, I tried to get tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert recently, and it's, it's damn near impossible. You have to be, you have to be the super fan of the super fans and signed up for all the right lists. And, and I think that a lot of people think that's how Disney is starting to feel in terms of its theme parks. But the more, nuanced or complex answer, I guess, is that it goes back to the staffing issues I mentioned, right? So the origin of all the changes that Bob Chapek made to the parks was was that he was having a seriously hard time restaffing the parks upon reopening. And um, and it's also the, that's also sort of the origin of kind of the 
the I hate Bob Chapek campaign among among a lot of the fans and the um, and, and and the cast members as they're called the employees of the parks, and but but you it, it's sort of hard to to lay all the blame squarely at his feet, right? I mean, you had they, the company had to do something; they couldn't continue to employ full time, you know, thirty thousand people or more um, when there was no one coming to the parks, and so they had to do something; they had to lay people off. But the unfortunate truth of it is, when they they came back. People didn't want to come back. So Disney had to do something they'd never done before, which was they had to sort of limit the number of people who who came to the parks each day. And they had to know exactly how many people were going to come each day so they could essentially run the parks on a skeleton crew and deploy labor where they needed it. So it was a labor deployment issue initially. What it became was something different which was it became a cash cow. I mean, uh, the company very quickly realized that when when there's fewer people at the park, people have a better time because they're not waiting in these incredibly long lines all day. They're not having to elbow their way through crowds to get their um, you know pineapple dole whip frozen treat. They're not having to to it's just a lot more pleasant to be at a place that where where the where the attendance is kept in check. For, for many reasons. And so um, the company the company put in place this online reservation system right when the parks reopened, initially a labor saving mm. you know, labor management tool. And, but then they realized that people were spending more. And so th- this this online reservation system became more important. It was like people are happy to open their wallets when they're having a better time. So let's let's really use this reservation system to kind of make the customer experience a little bit better. Then what they did was they also sort of around the same time or shortly after they introduced this online reservation system, they they launched something called Genie Plus, which is a um, it's a it's not a smartphone app, but it's a smartphone app feature. So it's inside the My Disney Experience app, which everyone downloads when they goes to a Disney park. And what it does is it tells you what the wait time is on pretty much any ride at the park. And um, if you use the paid version Genie Plus, the free version is just called Genie. If you use the paid version, which started out costing something like $15 a day on top of the price of your ticket, you got to skip the lines, the main lines, what are called standby lines on about 20 or 30 um, popular rides at the park. So this is a really great tool, right? You you go and, and you have your kids and everyone, you know, kids are eventually melting down and crying and hot and sweaty and don't want to be standing in a line. They want to be on a ride. If you had Genie Plus, um, you, you you got to skip about half of the rides that we're talking about here that you would normally otherwise have to wait in. And and it not only became this benefit, it also became pretty much essential to having a good time at Disney. I mean, I know this from personal experience. If I'd gone to Disney with my kids and not paid for Genie Plus, I would have gone on, you know, maybe three rides all day instead of the mm-hmm. six or seven that I did. Um, it's a fantastic cost-saving tool um, and and it's really worth the price. But then Disney started raising the price on it and everything else. So now on a high volume day at Walt Disney World in Florida, um, you know, meaning like there's a lot of demand that day. It's during high season. Um, you're paying $29 a ticket for Genie Plus for this add-on that allows you to have a good time. But wait, it doesn't end there. We also have something called Individual Lightning Lane that was also introduced after the pandemic reopenings, um, which which – is basically like this is for the creme de la creme rides. We're talking about Star Wars, Rise of the Resistance. We're talking sure. about Ratatouille. Um, we're talking about Radiator Springs Adventure. Like all these really, the really, really good rides that people want to go on. And I can tell you from experience that Rise of the Resistance is an amazing attraction. It's probably the most amazing theme park attraction I've ever been on. It's 20 minutes of being pretty much as close as you can get to inside 
a an action film with 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 a space a galactic space battle happening all around you. It's incredibly exciting. It costs a huge amount of money. We reported in a story um, earlier this month that that ride costs four hundred fifty million dollars each for each version of it in for one in Anaheim and one in one in uh, Orlando and and you know it's really worth it it's what it's what people inside Disney call a um, you know an intent to visit ride meaning people will plan their entire visit or their entire day around getting on Rise of the Resistance those rides if you want to they're not covered by by Genie Plus by this basic kind of ride skipping feature if you want to skip the line for that one you got to pay another fee 15 or $20 varies now. And they've been raising the rates on those too. So in a very short time, like I'm talking about the last six months, basically, um, you know, Bob Chapek's team at the parks, you know, under Josh DeMauro, who's the head of the parks, they, they realized there's a lot of headroom for what we can ask visitors to pay in order to make sure they're having the best time possible at Disney. And so, um, and and if you look at, you know, it doesn't take long to sort of look online to figure out what fan reaction is to this, to these changes. It's it's incredibly negative. And I don't mean like just a few things here and there. It is the entire dial- discourse, the entire dialogue about Disney parks right now is how how upset people are with these changes and the nickel and diming that they feel is happening. And, and um, one other two or two other really quick things are one is that the online reservation system um it is offensive primarily to people who are are what are called these legacy fans, people who have annual passes, people who go more than ten or twelve times a year, and there are really there's a really pretty huge group of people, especially at Disneyland and Anaheim, who who live nearby and they and they have an annual pass and they'll just they used to be they would just get done with work at three or four in the afternoon and they'd go and spend a couple hours at Disneyland because they really loved it. I mean, I I interviewed a guy for a story. Uh, about a month and a half ago, who told me that his best friend introduced him to to Disneyland. His best friend was a, a FedEx delivery guy, I believe, and he he um, introduced him to Disneyland. It was his favorite place to go in the world. Um, had an annual pass, and this guy died of a massive heart attack in his sleep a few years after first taking his friend to Disneyland. And and the guy I interviewed said, you know, the only place I feel like I could commune with my my dead best friend. Is, is at Disneyland. So I used to go there and I'd walk around. I wouldn't even do anything. I wouldn't ride rides. I would just buy an ice cream cone, see the lights. And it really felt to me like I was, you know, seeing this guy who, who I lost from my life. And that's what they describe as the magic of a place like Disneyland. It has these memories that have an incredibly strong nostalgic pull um, to them. And they're very, very sentimental. So that's, so, so, so the annual pass holders are the primary people who were upset about this online reservation system because it suddenly was snatched away from them. They couldn't just go whenever they wanted. They had to make reservations sometimes weeks or months in advance. Sometimes the days they wanted to go were completely booked up and full and they, there were no open spots for them. That's one thing to consider. And, um, the other thing, um, to consider is that Disney has very strategically, uh, uh, decided that the people they want to focus on bringing to the parks are these kind of like once in a lifetime visitors often they're foreign visitors i'm sure you've heard have you heard this term unfavorable mix no this was a this was a big deal in august during the earnings call bob chapek told investors that um you know, the park's results had not been quite as good as they could have been because of an unfavorable mix of visitors. 
And mm. um, Disney fans seized on this. They put they started making T-shirts that said "unfavorable." It was kind of like his Hillary Clinton basket of deplorables moment. Yeah, yeah, the de- yeah. He, yeah, yeah. That's a total deplorable thing. Right. So they said they said you know, oh, you're talking about us, the people who are your super fans. We're the unfavorable ones, and you'd rather have a family from China who's going to come and spend. $10,000 a day, um, you know, on, on, a, on a private custom guide to the parks and, 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 and not hold back, stay in your on-site hotels that cost $2,000 a night for a suite. Um, really, the, the whales who come to Disneyland and Disney World, uh, that's who they saw that, that, that comment directed at or referring to. Basically, we want the whales. We don't want anybody else. So th- those are two very important factors here in kind of how Bob Chapek um, – lost fans on the parks. I mean, he was really very unpopular with fans and there was a lot of sort of bad energy out there about him, which is also kind of interesting because he was not the head of the parks when all these changes were made. Josh DeMauro, who's extremely Mm -hmm. popular. I've walked the parks with Josh DeMauro. He was stopped maybe 50 times by people asking for selfies, wanting to thank him for the job he was doing. He's basically a celebrity, a corporate celebrity, Mm -hmm. um, but he somehow escapes blame for any of these changes, even though they were all made under his, his watch. But um, I think people know that Bob Chapek was once head of the Parks Division and that he came up through the Parks Division and and they, they see him as kind of this, uh, you know, a guy who knows how to squeeze a lot of juice out of the lemon. And, and that's why they associate these changes with him. Well, I uh, let me let me ask, because it, it sounds this is almost the opposite of the way you expect a big corporation like Disney to work. Right. The, the, the guy found way to, to make a lot of money. Um, and and you know really increase profitability of one one segment of the business, um, but is basically get, gets ousted for that because the the actual consumers turned against him. I mean it's it's such a it's such an it's such an unusual sort of thing. Like usually in these situations, you 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 see the penny pinchers and the nickel and dimers like really succeed. And not here. I mean, is this is this is it merely a function of fan unrest? Is that is that just the the long and the short of it? You mean you mean his his ouster? Yes, yes. So here's where I got to be careful because we don't know we don't know yet the entire story here. I mean, every um, you know me and my competitors, we've all sort of landed on kind of a the same narrative to a certain extent, which is that um, we all know, and it's been confirmed and, and, and my reporting and other people's reporting show that it was Christine McCarthy. I mean, she, she was the one who went to the board complained uh, that she had lost confidence in him and that the, co- the company was going in the wrong direction under him. Now you might think that's, I agree with you. It might seem odd that the CFO whose job is to control costs and, and, and sort of make the balance sheet look as good as possible. Um, you know, would would have lost confidence in a, a penny pincher or a cost cutter or somebody who knows how to maximize revenue quite well. But but she did. And we don't know yet all the details about why she lost confidence in him. So it's, it's, it's hard for, it's hard to say at this moment from where I'm sitting, you know, 1030 Western time on, on Wednesday that that um, he 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 lost his job because he lost the fan, the confidence of fans at the parks. Um, but it's hard also to discount that as a reason, um, because, because of the importance, simply because of the importance of the parks, you know, if the parks are starting to see cracks, which they, which they are, and I can get into that in a moment, but you know, if the parks are starting to see cracks and that's the engine driving investment in every other part of the company, 
Um, that's absolutely going to be a serious concern for Disney's board, for for its top executives, and it's going to be the source of frustration um, uh, for for a lot of people who work very hard to make sure that the parks run smoothly and are satisfying to, to visitors. So, so yeah, just to get into the numbers of it a little bit, I mean, you know, Disney's margins, profit margins at the park, fell by sixteen percentage points um, in the last quarter. That's that's really striking. I mean, they've never. That's about twice what they fell by in 2019, the, the last pre, you know, pre-pandemic year. Um, they usually fall between the third and fourth quarter as everyone goes back to school and families kind of readjust to their normal schedules. Yeah, people stop coming and spending as much money at the Disney parks as they as they were during the summertime. That's why you see that number go down. But, but I have. I mean, I have investor sources. Guys who work at, at 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 media hedge funds who will say to me, you know, I wouldn't touch Disney with a ten foot pole right now because the solid, the really solid business they have undergirding everything else, the parks, is starting to show a little bit of flashing red warning signs, and that's very that's very troubling to I think a lot on Wall Street, a lot of people on Wall Street, and a lot of people within the company. Um, so 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 yeah. Again, I, I'm not going to say right here and now that that losing the parks is yeah. why Chapek got axed, but I'm not going to discount that as part of the uh, the whole equation. Yeah, I um, well, I, can you talk about any of the the other cracks in the in the the Disney park? I mean, besides the big one, obviously, you know, the decline in in profit percentage. Uh, the kind of profit margins, and then there's kind of like uh, there's also just kind of this general sense that. Um, uh, people are just very unhappy, you know, and and there there's that that is sort of more subjective, obviously. But but the um, you know, I had somebody tell me that they, they they couldn't remember a time when sort of the discourse about about uh, Disney was this negative, and and people wearing you know t-shirts saying like f bob chapek at the parks you know um and without without fear of being asked to take them off and and um there's things like that right which are a little bit squishy and hard to sort of uh, you know nail down as kind of a direct reason for things but we've also heard you know there's also some other signs that seem to be more um, a little bit more clear, like signals that are a little more clear cutting through the noise. For example, they're offering discounts on some of their premium products that we've never seen before. We've got the Galactic Star Cruiser, which is this ridiculous $5,000 for two nights, and you get to basically be like a LARPer inside of the Star Wars universe for two nights, and you're on this, you're in a cabin, you're in this tiny cabin that you've paid thousands of dollars a night for. But the, the whole appeal of it is that if you're a Star Wars nerd, you get to kind of like be part of this mission and nobody breaks character and you can really like live out your wildest star Wars nerd fantasies for a couple of nights. And it's really real. It feels really, you know, it feels like you're right there. And, and, and they, they launched this attraction in Florida um, in March of this year. It was, it was, everyone was like the whole story about it was how shockingly expensive it was and how, mm-hmm. and how this is just a sign that Disney's kind of like further catering to specialized customers and not to the everyman. You know, it's not every, you know, it's not every Joe Schmo from from um, Ohio who's going to go and stay on two nights on the Galactic Star Cruiser. It's it's the most ardent Star Wars fans, yeah. and not only that, but the ones who are affluent enough to be able to afford that kind of a vacation. Um, we saw uh, about a week ago. We saw the first ever discounts offered on that, so thirty percent off. Still pretty expensive, but um, you know, a source of mine or a guy who I quoted, a former Imagineer. These are the sort of green berets of the parks who, who, who design all the, the rides told me, you know, what that means is they've, they've come close to running through all their most 
ardent Star Wars fans, and, and they're they're trying to open this up at least a little bit to kind of the everyman, and that's and that's a that's a big sign, right? If you're a company that's that's totally confident in its revenue from from super fans and in and in the engagement of super fans and their willingness to kind of spend all their money on your products doesn't offer discounts on those very same products. You know, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So so it's clearly a response to to demand um, you know, either either kind of being tapped out a little bit or, or maybe they're showing some signs of weakness in in demand there for that. But the, but that's that's one sign. There's a lot of kind of tea leaves that sort of suggest that maybe the parks aren't quite as uh Solid on solid ground as they as the, the company would like mm. them to be. Not to mention, we're probably about to enter a recession or something like a recession, and um, and Chapek really has not. I mean, if you listen, the other thing you have to understand is that there was this. People really care about um, two things: Disney's the way Disney sounds and the way their executive sounds on investor calls after their quarterly earnings reports come out, and second. Guidance. Disney never gives guidance. This is like a historic thing for the company. They never tell people what um, what's coming or what they think is coming in terms of like what the numbers are going to be, what sales are going to be, and they've started to have to do that. And this really began kind of in the um, in the in the COVID era because when when Disney Plus launched, they they knew they had to spend a ton of money on it. But but the bargain they made with Wall Street was. It, you let us spend all this money that we're we're raising from from you guys on Disney Plus, but we're going to be open and transparent about Disney Plus and what our goals are and what our targets are for how many subscribers we'd like to have. So, so what you've had was you know in late twenty twenty one, I believe, or well, late twenty twenty rather, um, at Disney's annual meeting, Chapek said, you know, we're going to have 230 to 260 million global Disney Plus subscribers by the end of 2024. That was the target they set. And this was kind of shocking. It was kind of shocking that they even gave a target because Disney never gives, you know, they don't go out there and say, here's what we're going to make Mm -hmm. on the latest Marvel movie at the box office. They don't even say, here's what we expect in terms of, uh, you know, sales and park tickets. But they, but they, that all kind of changed in, in, at the beginning of the pandemic and they realized they needed to be more transparent with the street in order to sort of maintain their share price and maintain the confidence of investors. So um, the situation we're in now is kind of like uh, everything they say is under a microscope and it's watched very closely. And on on November 8th, when Disney reported their, their earnings and that same day was what people are now describing as Bob Chapek's disastrous earnings call. He yeah. he he basically minimized um, the impact of of, of uh, you know of macroeconomic factors on the parks. He said the parks are still doing a phenomenal job. The only thing he would concede that might have been challenging for the parks was that Hurricane Ian cost them sixty five million dollars by shutting down the parks for a few days, which is which is just. I mean, in a way, it's kind of ludicrous. I mean, the, the, staring down a recession, and you're talking about how how the parks are still producing phenomenal results. His CFO, Christine McCarthy, was much more measured. She she was like, you know, uh, you know, looking forward. You know, she said demand is still strong right now, but you know, we're kind of keeping an eye on things going forward. Whereas Chapek's out there, kind of, um, you know, chirping about how great everything is going, and and that certainly has something to do with why he no longer is CEO. Well, let me let me ask about that because there is, uh, I, I, I won't put words in your mouth here. A friend a friend described the call to me. A friend who who was on the call described it to me as uh, Chapek sounded psychotic on this call. He he sounded like a crazy person, um, which which leads me to uh, yeah. I'll, I'll I want to wrap up here. I want to get you get you out of here. Get you back to work. Um, but leads me to kind of my last question here is how much of this uh, shift is just Chapek not having the personality to be 
the the head of Disney, right? Like the the head of Disney is an almost political figure. He has to he has to be he has to appeal to a broad, broad variety of people, not just fans, but also investors and also artists and and also all sorts of you know. There's a lot of different uh, uh, pots that he's got his hand in. Um, was Chapek just unsuited for that that sort of role in a way that Iger is not? I mean, Iger is much more naturally gifted at this sort of thing, I think, is the sense I get anyway from from talking from the few people I've talked to about it. Yeah. Again, I want to be careful because, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who's paid for his opinion on things. But um, I don't know if I would go as far as what your friend said, that he sounded psychotic. He didn't sound to me, in at least in like tone and cadence, he didn't sound all that different from the many times I've heard him speak about the company in public before. He's... Um, He's very kind of like he, – he does have kind of like a storybook voice. He sort of says, you know, he, I don't want to do an impression, but he'll go and he'll say, you know, the, the, uh, you know, Disney's legendary storytelling, you know, continues to be the strongest in the world. He kind of has this sort yeah. of uh, – he has a pitchman's – he's sure. a pitchman's a affect. Yeah. Right, a cadence that, that really um, – and I, I think he maintained that cadence. The, the issue was that the world changed, not that his tone changed. He didn't, he didn't really go off the deep end and start sounding like a crazy person. It was that, it was that he only sounded crazy relative to the weakness of the results Disney was showing. So it's kind of like, it's sort of like, you know, imagine him as a driver of a car and, you know, you're about to go off the end of a half-completed bridge and and he's kind of looking around at everybody saying like, like, isn't this a great trip, guys? Isn't this a fun road trip? You know, that that was sort of, I think that was kind of the, the, the strangeness of that call. And um, as far as his personality, look, the guy is very, very different from Bob Iger. And Bob Iger came up through the TV business. He was, you know, he ran ABC and ABC News for a while. He has deep, deep roots in the business of making content. And, you know, this is the guy who greenlit Twin Peaks in the early 90s and and, and put it on ABC primetime, you know. And, and this is a guy who did things like that, that won the hearts of creators and artists. You know, nobody, nobody was putting David Lynch series on TV in the early 90s, you know, mm-hmm. thinking they were going to, they're going to be, you know, the best thing to go in the Sunday night slot or whatever. I mean, he, he, he was a guy who understood, you know, that you have to take risks on creative and you have to let people learn and grow and fail. All these things, all these sort of, um, you know, trite things that artists say and that 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 um, investors say about, you know, what they learn about the world and love and life and art. Iger was right there in the thick of all that. He could relate to that and they could relate to him. And so... Um, you know, there's the, the the example everyone brings up is Scarlett Johansson, right? Disney kind of pulled a switcheroo on her during the pandemic, where they did a day and day release for Black Widow. She claimed it deprived her of um, her, the ability to earn a bonus at the box office because it cannibalized her box office sales. And and you know, I've heard numbers as high as like twenty million dollars that she missed out on from that movie going to Disney Plus on the same day as theaters. And and um, and Disney, you know, when she when she sued Disney to kind of recoup those losses, it was a big deal because nobody really sues Disney. Um, so props to ScarJo for for taking on Disney in the courts. But she, um, but their response to her was they put out this memo that's now infamous, essentially that said that you know ScarJo doesn't care about the people affected by by COVID. Which is just nuts. It's just a nuts thing yeah. to say in public. And I don't know who wrote that memo or wrote that response. It's probably somebody deep in the PR machine at Disney. But it happened under Chapek's watch as CEO. And so people look at that and they say, like, what is this guy doing? You know, you can't 
can't badmouth talent, especially not A-list talent, you know, just because they have a disagreement with you. Um, and so, look, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if he was unsuited to run the company. He had a very good track record up till then. He, I've talked to him personally face-to-face, and he said things. He's described to me, you know, I come from the marketing world. I know how to make products um, feel and seem essential to people, and I, and I know how to uh, – I know how to sell things. I'm a salesman, and 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 the fact is, he was a very good salesman. He he um, he did more to to sign up subscribers to Disney Plus than anyone thought he was ever capable of. It was a huge success on the on the early growth phase, um, but it really is notable. I think that now that we're in this kind of phase of raising prices, you know, the next phase after you get customers hooked and and, and sell them the product and, and, and make that product indispensable to them is when he's really stumbled and fallen. Um, and, and I think that you can, you can describe that however you want, or, you know, you can sort of chalk that up to personality or, or touch or, or lack thereof. But, um, it is an interesting point for me when I think about this whole thing. And, and and look, if you just watch 10 minutes of video of each of those guys, Bob Iger and Chapek, they're as different as different can be. I mean, Iger is this, yeah. is this suave, confident, you know, they used to call him the mayor of Hollywood. And um, the real question going forward to me is, is the Hollywood that Bob Iger was once the mayor of, is it the same place now that he's back? Um, you know, he wasn't there when Netflix lost 70% of its market value because they had a couple bad quarters for signing up subscribers. He wasn't there, you know, when, when, when Disney started raising prices, which they're doing in one week on, on, on Disney plus. And, you know, he, he, he kind of, uh, he kind of sat out some of the really intense moments in the streaming wars that have happened over the last year. And he's coming back and you can say, Sure, he, it's, it's a great thing for Hollywood because because everyone's going to have their their favorite uncle back in town, running the biggest empire in town. But but maybe just maybe you know Hollywood's not quite running Hollywood, running the biggest company in Hollywood is maybe not quite the same as it was when he when he left left Disney. So that to me is kind of the concern. Maybe, maybe, sure, maybe Chapek wasn't suited to run this company, and 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 certainly Bob Iger was suited in his last stint to run the company. But um, it really, there's a big question mark about how it's going to go going forward. Yeah. Uh, I always like to close these shows by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if you think there's anything folks <laughs> should know about Disney or, you know, uh, the parks in particular or just Disney in general, the, the streaming wars, whatever. What do, you, what do you think, folks? What did I fail to ask that folks should know about? Oh, um, <laughs> uh one thing you should, you know, I think people should know, people should be watching, keeping a close eye on Avatar 2. That's what I think is the the most exciting thing in Disney's world right now in terms of content. Um, just because, you know, I, I, my theory about Avatar 2 is that it's going to absolutely blow all expectations out of the water. Because, simply because, um, and I tweeted about this last week, um, it has a release in China. It's the first movie, first big movie from Disney, including the last like seven or eight Marvel titles to mm-hmm. be shown in China because Disney's like consistently screwed up things with the censors over there and like had, you know, hired producers and directors and actors who, who say critical things of China, which just doesn't fly right now in China. But consider the fact that in 2009, when the first Avatar film came out, um, and it was part of News Corp or as part of 20th Century Fox at the time, uh, which actually 
kind of side, funny side note, it's probably why I got hired at the Wall Street Journal is because the first Avatar did so well, and I was hired the year afterwards when when budgets were flush. Um, but but the first Avatar movie did uh, something like three hundred million dollars in China, and it only played on. I think around 2,000 screens. I mean, there were only about 2,000 screens in China at that mm-hmm. time. And, um, and IMAX Corp, which is the main you know 3D exhibitor in China, had 14 screens at the time. Uh, per capita GDP in China at the time was about $3,500 a person. You know, at Today, <laughs> there are 80,000 screens in China. There are almost 1,000 IMAX screens. And GDP per capita is about three times what it was back then. So when you put that into perspective, I mean, I don't, I'm not a, I don't know how to do the differential equation to predict, you know, what the box office draw will be there. But it, it really kind of boggles the mind the earnings potential of that movie. And you know, James, I know James Cameron's been out there saying, you know, you gotta have to gross. That's gonna be the second or third highest grossing movie of all time to even break even. Who knows if that's true? I mean. You know, I have a hard time believing that his combined production and marketing budget tops a billion dollars, but whatever he says it, so he knows better than I do. But but you know, just the earnings potential of that movie is really really kind of stunning, and I'm very excited to watch you know what happens and and, and whether or not that movie goes back because of course that's now part of a, a part of Disney. 20th Century Studios now part of Disney. Yeah. Uh, very exciting, and I think sometimes we get kind of caught up in sort of the the earnings report and kind of like which division of Disney is doing better and which one's failing, but. It, there's this really exciting part of it, which is which is watching what movies do because movies are very exciting and and I, I don't know I'll be I'll be in the seats at the theater somewhere watching that movie and and then I'll be checking my my phone for for how it's doing and 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 I expect those international numbers to come in really really big and um, yeah. which will be which will obviously give a lot of gas to uh, to Bob Iger on his return but. Yeah, or if you want to ask me, you can ask me anything you want about the movies. I'm a big fan of the movies too. Or I follow. Yeah, them well, no, I uh, <laughs> uh, the, the the Avatar two is is fascinating. I mean, I, I I think I tweeted something like six months ago. It was just a it was just a a, a big grid with all of the upcoming, you know, big blockbuster movies and literally the only one I was actually kind of looking forward to was Avatar two because it was like you know it was like Ant Man three. Uh, you know, like uh, whatever, just just an endless stream of of Marvel stuff and like Jurassic World sequels and spinoffs and whatever. And I was like Avatar too. I was actually kind of excited for that. And I yeah. So Cameron said. I mean, it's interesting to me that Cameron is not out there downplaying expectations. He's not trying to tamp anything down. He's out there. He's like, this has to be one of the five highest grossing films of all time, and and that means it has to gross two billion dollars worldwide. Like I, that, you know, right crazy it's a crazy number yeah all right all right robbie thank you very much for being on the show i really appreciate it uh like i said i'll let you get back to work um uh and make sure to check out his stuff at the wall street journal uh his his reporting on the parks is really interesting uh if you are uh not as well versed in that that side of the business as i frankly am not that's why i was glad to have him on uh my name is sunny bunch i'm culture editor at the bulwark and i'll be back next week with another episode of the bulwark coast of hollywood see you guys then. Mm-hmm.